This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be considered legal advice. The transmission of information on this podcast is not intended to establish and receipt of such information does not establish or constitute an attorney-client relationship. The choice of a lawyer is an important decision and should not be based solely upon advertisements. It's 2023. Welcome to another episode of Talking Pop Health. I'm Eric Tower, a partner in the law firm of Thompson Coburn. I'm really excited to have with me today Paul Calarusso from Euron Group. Paul, could you just give us a little bit about your background? Sure. Thanks, Eric, and appreciate you having me. My name, as Eric mentioned, Paul Calarusso. I'm a senior director in the Portfolio Strategy and Planning Group at Huron. And uh, for those that may be listening that aren't familiar with Huron, it's a management consulting group with a large focus on the healthcare industry. So what Huron does is we help prepare our clients for uh, the future, future viability within uh, their respective markets. Many folks, I think, know Huron as a performance improvement group, and, and we certainly do that. That's, that's kind of our lifeblood. But it, that's also a differentiator for the services that I tend to provide, which are mostly financial and strategic in nature. Uh, that, that can include growth finding new markets, finding new opportunities that may be within partnerships or de novo operations. Um, and, and of course, the uh, transaction side, which which would obviously include the, the partnership piece. So uh, again, thank you for having me. I'm excited to talk today. Well, you know, as the, I believe it's an Irish saying, you know, may you, in, may you live in interesting times. Um, <laughs> yeah. These are certainly interesting times. Mm -hmm. And you know, it's been really interesting the past year with the financial markets uh, really nosediving. I think that's put a lot of pressure on the systems. They've taken huge losses. My suspicion is a lot of that is because their investment portfolios have been tiding them over. Uh, there's no more, you know, COVID-related funding from the government at this point. Um, and, and wages are just skyrocketing. So there's the confluence of a lot of things going on here. Um, I'm also hearing from people on a couple fronts. Some are saying, hey, now we think it's time to get into value-based care. We really need to do this. I I've actually heard from some who are saying, you know what, it's a bit of a scam. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, we, we go and we provide value or we try to, and the payers move the rug on us. So right. I, I want to unpack for 2023. If I'm sitting here and I'm planning from various perspectives, what do I do? And I want to start with health systems because uh, I came out of a health system. Um, they're certainly big players, but there is just so much uncertainty at this time. And I'm just going to start off with, do health systems have to do value-based care? I think that's a great question. And I think I'm seeing a lot of the things that you are. Some think that they do and some think, why? Why would, why would we do this? Why would we go at risk? And maybe there's some negativity within themselves that, can we do this? How do we get this done? And so there's a lot of aspects I think that play into that, but those are the things that they're grappling with. Now, as you mentioned, we're in turbulent times. There are weakened balance sheets, there's inflationary pressures and headwinds. Really that's taking up a lot of bandwidth and uh, time from the systems to figure out, okay, hold on, first we need to fix what's going on here. But at the same time, I think there is a realization that 
the reliance on volume coming through your system may not be the best way. Maybe there's a way to, to hedge against some of that. So if I am working with a health system and I'm planning for 2023, I can't get volume. I've got service site neutrality. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to do value-based care. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I hear this from a lot of people. You know, where do I start? How do I do this? And how do I do it in a way that doesn't empty out my hospital and leave me completely unable to make my, you know, debt payments, pay my ever-increasing salaries, uh, and, and get a lot of those costs back? Sure. So, yeah, I, I think it, it it's difficult. It's scary. I think some are, are looking at the market and they're saying, okay, you know, they'll talk to their peers and their peers have 10 years of battle scars where they've taken their lumps and, and maybe it was in a better market than what we are in today. Uh, but they have those learnings. They have the data. They have the, the capabilities, the protocols that are, that are built out. And... Uh, and so they're saying, yeah, how, how do we do it? How do we catch up? And and one answer, or at least a, something that we're seeing is through partnerships. And so, you know, as you, you move to the transaction world, the desirability of you as either an acquirer or as a seller uh, improves immensely if you have some of that um some of those capabilities, some of the, it's a strategic asset that you are bringing to the table. And so I think that that's certainly something that we've seen and happy to, to get into that more. Yeah. What do you think are the elements of, of success then? I mean, anyone can say they want to do the value-based care. A lot of people have um, significant assets uh, that they have to pay for, you know, and, and to be honest, a lot of them have built out these medical groups Sure. It was predicated upon, well, we can push volume into the hospital mm-hmm. to some degree. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you, you had to do that in order to provide services to your community, obviously. Um, but, you know, the, the money from the hospital enabled the physician group to keep functioning. Right. I, you know, the music is is pretty much stopping there, isn't it? Um, how do you how do you succeed? Yeah. Yeah. I think you 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 need to get your hands on some of that risk premium. Right. But. What does that mean? That means you need to go at risk. We have a client that um, you know, was looking at an acquisition of a medical group. They they wanted to expand into that market. It's a big group, strong group. But one of the characteristics that they had is they are heavy into value-based care. They Most of their contracts are at risk, and, and they were really doing well within that environment. And so what our client said, and this is a, a large um, a large health system that uh, is, is strong in and of their own right, but what they said is there's a lot of know-how that this group has. And, and it got to the, to the point, and, and you know, we can discuss this as well, but they were battling with private equity groups for, for this business. Um, the, the business was generating a lot of cash flow. It's desirable to the financial buyers that are out there. But um, our client, which ultimately won the bid, said there's strategic value here associated with the construct of them, their know-how, they can teach us. And, and again, if, if you look at the size of these entities, the medical group is, is much smaller, maybe a tenth of the size uh, or, or even less. And, and we are talking a, a very large medical group. Um, but it, it was even surprising to know that or to understand once we were in there, 
uh, what their capabilities were, how they've grown to that point. And uh, it really was a differentiator for them when they went to market and started seeking a partner. So this is one of my sort of pet peeves. If you strictly look at a group like that, you know, from a revenue pr perspective, aren't you overlooking a lot of the value in that group? And contrary wise, I mean, if you simply use a discounted cash flow or some other model to say, well, this is what the value of the group is. The, the real value, um, sure, you're getting some back in, in the form of the physician services, mm -hmm. but isn't the real value in being able to take that know-how and scale it over the system? And you can't replicate that. So, right. so how do you go about, because a traditional valuation wouldn't even allow for that, would it, for a medical group? Yeah, that's right. Um, due to fair market value, uh, standards and, and issues that come associated with that. And the valuation industry really is still predicated on on future cash flow. And so you would argue it's it's the earnings that the physicians are or that the business as a whole is generating now for medical group that a lot of the times goes to the physicians. And so they there's compensation issues of course that you have to try to figure out once you're aligned with the health system, but ultimately the value of that know-how is that's where it should come out. And and ultimately you think about primary care docs that are making seven figures plus and and that alone proves you know what what you're doing. And and from a transaction standpoint, it creates some uh, I guess hurdles that you need to figure out and get over because it, it, the dollars have to ultimately uh, come from somewhere. Yeah, and do you when when you look at someone like that? I mean, we could we could say, oh, they've got an EMR, they've got protocols, mm -hmm. they might have you know some form of data analytics. Um, you know, how do you deal with culture, hmm. right? Because when you when you pick up these any asset, you can't just wave a magic wand. But here you've got a group that's already got it, right? And so leveraging that culture becomes a lot easier because you've already got that in your back pocket. Certainly. That's a great point. And um, yeah, it, as you're talking about partnerships and folks coming together, there's a whole work stream that needs to be part of that process to ensure that the understanding is there so that you're realizing that value. Uh, I think it, it, it's always going to come easier with the person that or with the group that grew that organically than somebody that that partners into it. And, and so, of course, that that creates challenges with the model that we're talking about here. And let's look at the flip side, because I've seen already in 2023, a lot of systems who are rethinking their model. Mm -hmm. And right now I'm seeing more, uh, not sort of a generalized, gee, we want to go back to 2000 and shed all our physicians, mm -hmm. but more of a targeted one, um, you know, where they're, where they're trying to get rid of certain specialties. I shouldn't say get rid of. They're trying to rethink how they operate those specialties Mm -hmm. uh, in order to rationalize um, utilization and to increase quality, what, what are you seeing on that side? Yeah, I think it's a it's a balancing act, and so you know, cutting costs. I, 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 every system that we know is looking at and thinking about ways to cut cost, uh, and so a way that you can start to think about it is: what are we competent at? What are we not competent at? And, and, you know, a lot of times that comes through in the numbers, you're looking through your financial statements and you're understanding where you're losing money. And, and so you may say, okay, 
what do we do with this? Can we partner it off? Can we, you know, sell it outright? Do we just get rid of it? But that comes with the consequences of not not retaining a continuum of care. And, and especially in today's world where patient satisfaction is so important, you need to have not only those services, you need to have access to those services. We understand it and, and we do a lot of that work, but you have to do it in a, in, in a smart way that's going to allow you to, number one, serve your patient population, uh, but also maintain that continuum of care. And, and as the world is moving towards value, that becomes more and more important because you need to, well, if you don't have control over the clinical protocols, you don't have control over the outcomes, and therefore you're not going to have control over um, ultimate financial aspects that, that come along with them. So uh, many thoughts here, uh, just from personal experience, but sure. you're really hitting a hot button with the control thing. Yeah. What I've seen with a lot of the health systems, they really do want to do things. They're really scared of losing control. Mm -hmm. I mean, are you seeing an attempt to really partner? Are we requiring participation in, you know, clinically integrated networks? Uh, what, are, what are we doing to kind of get people comfortable around the potential that, if they lose that control, they lose the entire asset and their ability to provide care. Yeah. Well, I, I think that we're seeing a lot of systems that say we're not going to give up control. And so an approach that we commonly take is we say, okay, let's go in and let's look at this from a non-biased point of view. What would we have to do to improve operations? What do we have to do to make sure that this is a sustainable model a sustainable service so that we can keep these services in this market we can keep serving our patients and of course we can keep everything within our own network and so you can start with an assessment we do start with an assessment like that and then of course you you come up with the other strategic optioning that goes along with that and then ultimately make a decision and and you can track along of course it, it you know you can you can pivot at a certain point but we certainly are seeing those that are saying, you know what, we're going to try to keep this. We're going to try to turn it around um, or at least improve it to a degree where the losses that we're sustaining on that service line, uh, we can stomach, at least in the shorter term. So you said something that to me is pretty revolutionary, um, at least as traditionally viewed. You, you know, your focus here is on the network. And the thing that's interesting is, in my experience, even many health systems are still focused on inpatient and outpatient revenues, and the network becomes almost secondary to that in the minds of many administrators. Um, how do you wrestle with that? I, that is a major cultural shift, if you ask me. Yeah, yeah. Another thing that's difficult to, to get over, but in our view, maybe I should say, in, in my view, the the future of healthcare is within that network. And, you know, the, the big, bulky inpatient services are just not where things are going. I mean, it, it's evident in uh, the increased activity that you're allowed to do in an outpatient setting in the ASCs and, and so on and so forth. And it's a totally different structure to different reimbursement model, as we know, with site of service. But what can and should come along with that is the, the changes in operating expense structure. So what you hope to do is, is gain efficiencies 
through that model that better aligned with your revenue model, uh, which which enables you to to continue to provide those services. And it ties closer with 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 the goals of a lot of health systems out there, lowering the cost of care, improving access to care, providing care closer to home. Those are all differentiators that that folks are looking for as they're serving their marketplace. I think just to poke a little bit, you know, easier said than done if you're yeah. in a growing geography. So if I'm True. in the South, if I'm in Texas or Dallas or what have you, uh, I have an increasing population. I can backfill anything if I, you know, move stuff out to ambulatory. Mm-hmm. If I'm in a declining geography population-wise, you know, a in Illinois, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, mm-hmm. um, you know, New England, I, I'm in a different place. So, and I have all these costs, right? Uh, and a lot of those are fixed. Yep. So, what do I what do I do? I think that's the million dollar question, right? It, it's, it, yeah, yeah. Growth solves a lot of issues. I, I think that that's certainly true. Um, when you don't have that, you have some some incredibly difficult decisions to make. Uh, and you know the the capital markets aren't supporting you now. I I, I think that that is is pretty clear. Um, strategic partnerships, smart decision-making as it relates to those partnerships, I think can be a solution. Um, but ultimately, I, I, I do think that there are some lumps that are coming in, in those types of markets. So I'm hearing a lot about, okay, there's going to be more hospital affiliations looming on the horizon. And I, I guess I kind of scratched my head a little bit because, you know, if I went to market and I had 170 days cash on hand, and given the recent turbulence, I'm down to 80. Mm-hmm. How do I justify going to another hospital, um, adding them to my balance sheet and making capital commitments to them or even a commitment to keep them open? And, and we all know that's the typical currency uh, yeah. in these deals are, are those type of negotiations. You know, what, what do you do to get around that? Yeah, well, I, I think you can use that as, as uh, an opportunity for transformation. And so, you know, it, it's this isn't the the typical or I guess the historic buy and hold scenario when when, you know, the acquirers out there, when when they're bringing somebody online, they should have a plan that essentially says, you know, there were some issues here. How do we solve those issues? You need to understand that going in. Uh, what's your plan? And, and of course, it, you do have you should have some scale. You do have some opportunities to leverage your existing footprint, your existing services to help, uh, I guess, accommodate for some of the volume that you may not otherwise continue to see in the environments that that are there. Yeah, I, I mean, I can just tell you from firsthand experience, when you go into a deal and the plan is, well, we might need to reduce services in a particular community. Yeah, not a good idea. <laughs> you know, unless you've got someone who's openly acknowledged that they're a distressed yeah. asset, that is... Um, that's a tough negotiation. Yeah, and I don't think it's decreasing services. I think it's increasing access and it's doing it in a different way. And and you can use technology to do it. Um, you can adjust the footprint to do it. Um, and um, but then of course you know you'll you'll it, it takes a lot of movement. It, it takes a lot of activity or um, uh, action in order to do so. Now, this, as you point out, the situation is is going to drive 
a lot of that. If you're in an environment where you're, you have a strong competitive position, um, you know, you're not weakened by say a competitor or an industry dynamic that is going to be permanent, then that's a totally different story, I think, than, than what we're talking about here. And, and in those scenarios, I, I totally agree. I, you would never go in and say, Hey, we're, we're, we're going to cut services. We're going to, and, and of course the FTC, I think is, is going to have a lot of issues with, with saying and doing those types of things as well. It's certainly a challenge out there. Yeah, well, don't start me on the FTC. <laughs> I had my experiences with them. Um, shifting gears, maybe not so slightly. Uh, you know, the turbulence that's hitting health systems is also, I think, rippling over into the private equity side, right? Mm -hmm. And so, and I've said this before, but three basic models for private equity, right? We take people out of network and jack up rates. Mm -hmm. We add ancillaries or we go value-based care. There's a fourth model that I personally don't really like to work with. And I, I know it. And that's basically, we're just going to get scale and sell to someone who can figure out what to do with these. Sure. Yeah. Where, where are you seeing things headed in 2023 of, of those models? And how do you think that's affecting how private equity is approaching things as we enter 2023? You know, I think a, a lot of times they, they private equity is sophisticated. They tend to understand they can take risk. They have dollars behind them, certainly. Uh, but, you know, I think the, the value-based care model is where you will continue to see. And that's, I think, because they understand that control of the premium dollar and then, of course, control of the panel that that they would ultimately see through those investments. So on the private equity side, you know, there's been a lot of activity. I, I personally am noting it more towards the multi-specialty groups mm -hmm. in, in the value-based care, where I think there definitely seems to be a tide of them going in. And then I'm also seeing uh, a lot of single specialty. Mm -hmm. And the thing that interests me, and I'd love to get your thoughts on this, in the, in the multi-specialty, it, it seems that they're a little more willing to kind of go it alone. Um, the single specialty, I'm definitely seeing a, a tide towards partnerships. With the multi-specialty groups, if they have the primary care base and they can provide the specialty services outside of the hospital, um, they're more willing to go in there and take that risk. Right. The, the single specialty are dependent on obtaining the referrals. Right. You know, very few people say, oh, I know such and such. I'm just going to call, you know, oh, a GI doc. Right. You know, I'm right. going to call them. So they're more uh, focused on aligning within the existing structures. And that takes relationships that they have to develop. And, right. And they need to exactly. be in network. Yeah. Yeah. And, the, and those relationships become harder to develop. And I think the view that you would get from health system clients uh, is that, you know, they view private equity as, as well, they, they understand the private equity model, which is essentially we're going to exit at some point. And so are they willing to invest within those relationships? And, and obviously that can be harder, you know, harder to do, harder for them to, to get the buy-in for and therefore harder to support the, the single specialties. And the other thing that you don't necessarily get is the full realization of, ancillary services and, and dollars that come along with it. Yeah. And this is going to be a tough one, but do you see a difference in how the for-profit health systems are viewing private equity versus the not-for-profit? I do. Yeah. 
I think it's it it's mostly cultural. I, I think the for profits um, tend to I, I guess the they can relate a little bit more to the private equity groups, and, and I think that the reasons why are are obvious. They both have investors to answer to, whereas the not for profits will of course lean on their mission and and their purpose. The ultimate difference amongst the three, or, or I guess of provider side, is that they both will tend to say we're in it for the long term. We're, we're not here and, and trying to exit. And and I think that does uh, enable the ease of the partnerships, again, that I think are required in order to focus on investment within the single specialty area. So culturally, it, it sounds like historically you, you observe maybe a misalignment um, between private equity and the and the not-for-profit systems. Are you seeing a trend to maybe rethink that? Or what are you observing when you talk with the not-for-profit health systems? I think that they need investment dollars, right? We, we talked about the turbulence that they're facing and, um, you know, the weakened balance sheets that they have right now. They, and private equity can bring money. They can bring you know, certain know-how. And, and one thing I think that they, it, maybe it is along the lines of know-how or, or operational expertise is their willingness to make the tough decisions that need to be made sometimes that the not-for-profit health systems, just, it, it's just more difficult for them to stomach, I guess. So we've got too many specialists in area X, um, you know, and we know if we get rid of four of these doctors to kind of rationalize the service, we're going to get a big blowback, not just from the remaining doctors in that specialty, but from our entire medical staff. Right. Yeah. Which makes sense. Yeah. I guess that's an interesting dynamic and, and something to think about it. Is it, you know, they know that, that, or I guess they, they have investors that they need to answer to when you're, when you're private equity backed and you're, Therefore, you you have no choice, and and you realize and know that your job there is to drive optimization, whereas the the mission aspect of uh, the not for profits makes them think more along the lines of, um, you know, we're, we're we're still serving the community and all our key constituents. That includes our medical staff. So I don't know if I don't think I have the answer to that, but it's it's certainly something to that's interesting to to think about as the kind of psychology of of the approach. So here's another fairly tough one. When you deal with the not-for-profit systems or even the for-profit systems, um, and they're looking to align with private equity, you know, how prevalent is the notion of, boy, we know we can't do this. We've got service site neutrality. And, you know, part of a pie is better than all of an empty pan. Um, you know, yeah. we could lose pretty much everything if we if we don't rationalize things and right. Uh, versus, I mean, are you seeing an increasing mindset like that, or what are you observing? Yeah, certainly, and I, I think it's you know something that we we we've talked about before, and and it's not just private equity; it's others, and, and they do tend to be the for profit. Some of them are private equity backed, um, but yeah, we talked about control, and and you know you want to maintain some semblance of control. You also want. Uh, to keep the future profitability associated with that. And it's, you know, sometimes it's a bandwidth issue. Sometimes it's a competency issue and um, other times it's, it's just a market issue. 
But if you if you're unable to do it yourself, seeking a partner that that can do it, I think is is smart. And and then of course you don't want to have the seller's remorse, or I think that's at least how they think that okay, you know, we 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 still want a piece of this. They, frankly, I feel like I think that they feel like they create a lot of that value, so they want to hold on to that, right? I mean, as as you're pushing patients into those types of services, or, or I guess, so you think about where those patients are coming from, they're coming from the system, right? Yeah, fair enough. Well, one of the things I've definitely seen as being a hurdle to value-based care, and this applies, I think, to every one of the actors we've talked, is um, the need for data, right? And, you know, that's not just clinical data, it's also cost data. Um, what are you seeing around people who want to get into value-based care and, and what they're doing to kind of um, surmount that hurdle? Yeah, I think they go in knowing that they're going to take their lumps or they find somebody that, that is going to help them get over the hurdle. A lot of the clients that we know that are doing it well, they just have the battle stories. You know, They say, we, we've been on a 10-year journey and there was no financial return for a long time, but here we are and, and now we're able to do it. And so um, there's there's really no bending of that learning curve. You have to go through it and you have to do it. And 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 data is a big part of that. It's it's not only gathering it, it's understanding uh, how to use it, how to right size your operations so that you are adequately providing the services in the places they need to be based on the, the, the patient population, which obviously derives from that data. And so I think that uh, some will be better than others. Some ultimately, I don't think will ever gain the competency in, in order to do it. But then flip side, it, yeah, it, it's a tough time to be going after stuff like that uh, because of the cost and, and investment that is required to get into it. But it's it's absolutely critical. And, and so, you know, as you think about what the systems have been facing over the last few years, they have their their hands full with all types of headwinds and and you know you talk covid you talk um inflationary pressures etc well in the meantime mostly the insurers are the payers but also those that have um health plan have been collecting that data analyzing that data learning that data so the the gap i i think unfortunately has continued to expand between those that have it and, and those that don't um if you don't how do you get to it um, that that'll be an interesting story. So obviously, forming your own health plan, um, among other things, huge capital requirement uh, in in just about any jurisdiction I yep. can think of, mm -hmm. um, might not be a viable option, especially in a market where maybe you've only got a couple of insurance companies, and they might not necessarily want you forming your own health plan. I could go on and on about broker relationships and mm -hmm. how that affects healthcare. Um, but I probably shouldn't. <laughs> um, you know, are you seeing an increase in sort of partnerships with payers, you know, to obtain and, and utilize that data in a constructive way? Or what are you seeing? Certainly. Yeah. Yeah. Especially if the partnership enables some of the sharing of that data, which it may or may not. But yeah, as, as you're talking about setting up clinically integrated networks and whether if you're deriving that yourself or if you're finding markets that are kind of ancillary to others and you're partnering together, bringing in a payer partner is, is absolutely uh, 
something that we're seeing and, and I think is is a great idea. And 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 of course that can be um, provider-based healthcare plans as well. And so we we've had conversations recently, one with uh, an academic medical center that is uh, talking to a, a, a not-for-profit system that's in an ancillary market. And and so again, one one of the key characteristics that one side has that the other side don't, doesn't, they both have health plans and, and one side has aspirations to move into population health and the other side has been on that journey for a while. And so they they see opportunity in, in one another, um, but it's, you know, the, the strategic asset that the one side has that is obviously desirable for the other is, is going to be that those learnings, the, the compiled data, the data management, the, the know-how of, of figuring out how to use the data and apply the data to better optimize your network and, and better optimize um, the outcomes. Well, we've talked about um, health plans, health systems, uh, you know, private equity. Let's turn slightly. There's been a lot in the in the press about technology and healthcare. Mm-hmm. I think we go back to COVID. You know, you had a growing acceptance of telemedicine. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm seeing a lot in artificial intelligence and other sort of uh, techie type services. I'll call them. Um, you know, what are your thoughts on that? Because uh, there certainly has been a lot written about new developments in that. You know, there's a lot of um, data aggregators out there that that use that and and provide the service of the data analytics, and and they can bring those to to the systems, and and so that's certainly something that helps if if you have somebody that can understand it, um, but it also creates um, an issue around learning how to effectively use that, and so I think that that's certainly true in, at the health system level. Um, but it goes down to the patients as well. And so as we're working with clients that are looking to improve uh, access to care, what's coming to mind is the rural environments where they say, okay, well, yeah, let's let's introduce telehealth. We can provide more specialists. We can increase access and 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 do it in that way. You, number one, have the, the reimbursement issues depending on those services. Uh, but what you also have is the folks or I guess a, a large degree of the population is the aging population and getting them to understand how to use the technology, um, you know, in a rural environment, do they have the, the internet bandwidth to, to enable that? Um, the connectivity issues, obviously it, it, it can create some frustrations. And so, and that of course ties into patient satisfaction, which is a, another key on everybody's mind. Um, but yeah, so I think that there's, there's certainly, uh, we need to do it. We, we, you know, as a nation, I think, and and I'm talking U.S. healthcare at this point, but uh, need to continue to invest in those because there's a lot of positive outcomes that can come with it, including the the increased ac- access to care, as, as we've talked about, the efficiency that is uh, that it can drive, and and of course, as we're all looking to optimize operations, um, but of course, there there's the the hurdles that come along with it as well. This has been great. Do you have any closing thoughts for us? I don't think so. I think really appreciate you having me here. This has been a really fun conversation and, uh, you know, looking, looking forward to, to any feedback from your listener audience. So I'll have to check back for, yeah, I'm not sure if you do, but you should do a, uh, like a, a, a listener email maybe once a month and just respond to some questions like that. I think that'd be fun.
That's a great idea. <laughs> I that. Thank you, Eric. I really appreciate it. Thank you.